Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Stand by for the most extraordinary chain of events ever swept up into high adventure. Hey, Larry, where's the forklift? Forklift! It's over there with the baggage water. Airplane. Airplane is drama. Uh, this is Dr. Brody at the Mayo Clinic. There's a passenger on your Chicago flight 209 or a little girl named Lisa Davis en route to Minneapolis. She's scheduled for a heart transplant. I want you to make sure that she's kept in a reclined position and that a continuous watch is kept on her IV. Airplane is action. Airplane is romance. I love you, Elaine. I love you. Airplane is music. There is only one river. There is only one sea. Airplane is dancing. Never has the screen been so big. You ever been in a cockpit before? No, sir. I've never been up in a plane before. Peter Graves. You ever seen a grown man naked? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. My name is Roger Murdoch. I'm an airline pilot. Leslie Nielsen. This woman has to be gotten to a hospital. A hospital? What is it? It's a big building with patients, but that's not important right now. Lloyd Bridges. Johnny, what can you make out of this? This? Why, can make a What a brooch. What pterodactyl could you get? Um, Robert Stack. All right, Steve, let's face a few facts. And we hope you enjoy the rest of your flight. Julie Haggerty. By the way, is there anyone on board who knows how to fly a plane? Can you fly this plane and land it? Robert Hayes. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. I've got to get out of here. I've got to get out of here. I'm down. Get a hold of yourself. Calm down. Now get back to your seat. I'll take care of this guy. Calm down. Get a hold of yourself. Don't be one of the four. Everything's been The most incredible adventure the screen has ever created. He's coming right at us! The big news is... Airplane. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and this is a special episode. It's a milestone episode. That's right, it's number 200, and what better way to celebrate than to talk about my all-time favorite movie... Airplane from 1980. The studio was Paramount Pictures. The release date was July 2nd, 1980. The running time, 87 minutes. 
The rating was PG, the budget was $3.5 million, and the box office took in $83.4 million, making it the fourth-ranked movie of 1980. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 97% fresh from 63 reviews. Their critics' consensus is, though unabashedly juvenile and silly, Airplane is nevertheless an uproarious spoof comedy full of quotable lines and slapstick gags that endured to this day. Roger Ebert at the time gave it 3 out of 4 stars, and here's his review. Airplane is a comedy in the great tradition of high school skits. The Sid Caesar TV show, Mad Magazine, and the dog-eared screenplay people's nephews write in lieu of earning their college diplomas. It's sophomoric, obvious, predictable, corny, and quite often very funny. And the reason it's funny is frequently because it's sophomoric, predictable, corny, etc. Here's an example. Airplane Captain Peter Graves. Surely you can't be serious. The doctor, Leslie Nielsen, I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. This sort of humor went out with Milton Berle, Jerry Lewis, and the knock-knock jokes, and that's why it's so funny. Movie comedies these days are so hung up on being contemporary, radical, outspoken, and cynically satirical that sometimes they forget to be funny. And they've lost the nerve to be as corny as Airplane, to actually invite loud groans from the audience. The flop of a movie, Holy Moses, for example, is no doubt an infinitely more intelligent comedy, but the problem was we didn't laugh. Airplane has a couple of sources for its inspiration. One of them is obviously Airport from 1970 and all the sequels and ripoffs. The other might not come immediately to mind unless you're a fan of The Late Show. It's Zero Hour from 1957, which starred the quintessential 1950s B-movie cast of Dana Andrews, Linda Darnell, and Sterling Hayden. Airplane comes from the same studio, Paramount, and therefore is able to cheerfully borrow the same plot, which is an airliner is imperiled after the crew and most of the passengers are stricken with food poisoning. The zero-hour crisis situation, how to get the airplane down, was also borrowed for the terrible airport 1975, in which Karen Black played the stewardess who tried to follow instructions radioed from the ground. Airplane has two desperate people in the cockpit, Julie Haggerty as the stewardess and Robert Hayes as a former Air Force pilot whose traumatic war experiences have made him terrified of flying. The cockpit also contains a very kinky automatic pilot, but never mind. The movie exploits the previous films for all they're worth. The passenger list includes a little old lady like Helen Hayes in Airport, a guitar-playing nun like Helen Reddy in Airport 1975, and even a critically ill little girl who's being flown to an emergency operation... (laughs) like Linda Blair played the role in 1975. Predictable results occur as when the nun's guitar knocks loose the little girl's intravenous tubes and she nearly dies while all the passengers sing along inspirationally. The movie's funniest scene, however, occurs in a flashback explaining how the stewardess and Air Force pilot first met and fell in love years ago. The scene takes place in an exotic Casablanca-style bar, which is miraculously transformed when somebody's hurled at the jukebox and starts playing Stan Alive from the Bee Gees. The scene becomes a hilarious send-up of the disco scenes in Saturday Night Fever, with the young pilot defying gravity to impress the girl. Airplane is practically a satirical anthology of all the classic movie cliches. Lloyd Bridges, as the ground control officer, seems to be satirizing half of his straight roles. The opening titles get an enormous laugh with an unexpected reference to Jaws. The neurotic young pilot is talked back into the cockpit in a scene from Newt Rockne, All-American. And the romantic scenes are played as a soap opera. None of this really adds up to great comic artistry, but Airplane compensates for its lack of original comic invention by its utter willingness to steal, beg, borrow, and rewrite from anywhere. And that's the end of Ebert's review. See, what I find amusing about Ebert's review, and it's always fun to read you know, reviews at the time, 
His funniest scene was at the disco bar. Now, don't get me wrong. It's a really fun scene, and it's funny, but compared to the countless other jokes and memorable scenes, I definitely wouldn't rank that as number one, but that's hindsight, of course. In any case, as I mentioned in the beginning, this is my all-time favorite movie. Not just comedy, but movie. From the first time I saw this as a kid, it was instantly quotable, and it was a totally enjoyable film. And to this day, even when I know exactly which lines are coming, I still crack up. The movie never gets old for me, and it never will. So the main cast, usually if you listen to all the episodes, I go through the main cast. But there's so many great cast members, I just I won't get into their history. But I may mention them once I get into the film. So we'll skip ahead and we'll talk about the directors and the writers. We have Jim Abrams, David Zucker, and Jerry Zucker. The trio were unique as not only collaborators when it came to writing, but also directing. Obviously, the Suckers are brothers, and Abrams knew them when they were growing up in Wisconsin. They all went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and they started a small theater group in 1971 called the Kentucky Fried Theater, which is the same sketch comedy that eventually turned into their first film that they wrote in 1977, the Kentucky Fried Movie, which was directed by John Landis. So let's get into the making of the film. So the first draft was written in 1974 while they were working on their Kentucky Fried Theater material. So they would record late-night commercials in order to get material for their spoofs. After one night's taping, they didn't get much commercial material, but they recorded a 1957 film called Zero Hour, like Ebert mentioned, which is a disaster film set on a plane. The writer of Zero Hour also wrote all the airport films. The trio decided that it would be interesting to write a parody film based on Zero Hour, and they called it The Late Show because their ideas were still based around making a film around their commercial parodies. This premise, of course, was later used for the Kentucky Fried movie. One of the guys they brought the idea to felt that the script for Airplane was better than their commercial spoofs and that they should just concentrate on doing a full film around that. So the Zuckers wanted a B-movie score when discussing their music with Elmer Bernstein. They really didn't want a fabulous score. Luckily, Bernstein got their vision and thought the movie was hilarious and delivered a perfect type of score for what the film needed. And if you didn't know already, Bernstein also famously did the score for Animal House. Many of the extras during the airport scenes were actually real passengers heading to their flight since they couldn't just shut down the LAX airport to film a movie. It was a very low budget and works great, actually. Abrams and the Zuckers always envisioned the film in a prop plane, just like Zero Hour. Michael Eisner, who was the head of Paramount, insisted they had to use a real jet, which really disappointed the guys because they always wanted the low-budget feel of it. One film studio that was interested in the film wanted Dom DeLuise and Harvey Corman in the film. Another studio wanted essentially a sequel to Kentucky Fried Movie instead of having, you know, Fistful of Yen in the first film. Airplane would then be the 20-minute movie centerpiece around the parody of commercials. That would have been very interesting. Abrams and the Zuckers would screen this film at colleges and then would edit the film after these screenings and would take out the scenes that wouldn't get the laughs. Abrams and the Zuckers wanted Helen Reddy and George Kennedy for the film, but they didn't want to rock the boat at Universal who produced the airport films, and those were their cash cows. Jack Ward from Hawaii Five-0 fame turned down the film because he hated Kentucky Fried Movie. The premiere of the film was at Paramount Studios at Michael Eisner's insistence. It was a total disaster as the film operator showed the film out of order, meaning the film reels were placed out of order. <laughs> those were the days where the movie actually needed a film projector operator to show the film. The studio bought the rights to Zero Hours, so none of it was plagiarism and the directors could go and make the movie they wanted to. One script of Airplane had Beaver from Leave it to Beaver and Wally flying the plane down, and this was during the 20-minute sketch days when they were coming up those ideas. 
Robert Hayes, who of course plays Ted Stryker in the film, says it was easier working with three directors at once than some single directors. That's how good they were. They, they thought so much alike, it just worked. Jerry would be on set, and then David and Jim would watch uh, Monitor Offset and then come back with their ideas. All right, let's get into the film. So I could easily just play the entire film, and I think most people would be happy. Actually, this will most likely be the most clip-laden episode I'll ever do, and it deserves it. So immediately the movie starts with a gag, and it never stops for the rest of the film. The intro is a Jaws parody, as you can see the clouds and the tail of an airplane circling the clouds like a shark in the water before the plane comes soaring out. Even the score music is like the Jaws theme. I also love that the title of this film has an exclamation point. It's not just airplane, it's airplane! This actually comes directly from Zero Hour, because the title of that film also had an exclamation point. Next, we hear the amazing argument between the White Zone and the Red Zone announcers. The Red Zone is for immediate loading and unloading of passengers only. There's no stopping in the White Zone. No, the White Zone is for loading and unloading, and there is no stopping in the Red Zone. The Red Zone has always been for loading and unloading. There's never stopping in a white zone. Don't tell me which zone is for stopping and which zone is for loading. Listen, Betty, don't start up with your white zone shit again. There's just no stopping in a white zone. Oh, really, Vernon? Why pretend? We both know perfectly well what it is you're talking about. You want me to have an abortion. It's really the only sensible thing to do. If it's done properly, therapeutically, there's no danger involved. <laughs> This is how I learned about what an abortion was whenever I first saw this as a kid. Thank you, Airplane. Though I think I probably quoted, uh, don't give me any of that white zone shit again far more often. <laughs> the red zone and the white zone announcers were the actual LAX announcers, and they were married in real life. It's also interesting to see how relaxed airports used to be, as you had all these religious nuts all around, and in this case, the Church of Religious Conscious hanging out with flowers, along with the Hare Krishnas, which you never see them any longer. This also leads to a great joke where the Church of Religious Consciousness asks for a donation to the pair of Harry Krishnas, and they say they already gave it the office. <laughs> and you might remember from back in the 80s, the Joe Azuzu guy played one of the Harry Krishnas. Also, the airport security was way less invasive back in 1980, unless you're the guy who sets off the metal detector with a metal-plated arm and leg, which he has to put into the tray. <laughs> So it's easy to forget in this film that Ted Stryker, of course Robert Hayes, is working as a taxi driver at the beginning of the film because he quickly drives up to the airport in the beginning and picks up a fare and then leaves the meter running as he runs into the terminal. And that ends up being a fun joke at the end of the film. This is Robert Hayes' first movie because he had only appeared on TV shows throughout the 70s. And what a way to make a bang into Hollywood. We also get a cameo from one of the Zucker brothers playing the ground crew man directing plane traffic where he inadvertently sends the plane crashing into the terminal. Jerry Zucker is the one that actually guides the plane to crash. The plane crashing through the terminal was actually a full-size model. So the initial plot point of the film is Ted trying to stop Elaine, that's Julie Haggerty, from leaving him, which is why he's at the airport to talk to her because she's the stewardess. Sorry, flight attendant for those now indoctrinated with the plethora of euphemisms of today's language. Elaine is finished with Ted, which he can't accept. Ted hasn't been able to keep a job or get his life together after the war, which he served as a fighter pilot. And like Robert Hayes, this was Julie Haggerty's film debut because she was a theater actor prior. Next, we meet Captain Over, played by Peter Graves, who is perusing the magazines at the airport lobby. 
Here's a perfect scene that epitomizes why repeat viewing of this film will never get tiresome. You may miss it, but the magazines are labeled by section. You have fiction, nonfiction, and then whacking material, which is a section of nudie magazines. I'm pretty sure I missed this the first 50 times I saw the film. And as a sign of uh, jokes later in the film, Captain Over picks up a copy of Modern Sperm. So Graves had been in Hollywood since the 1950s. He appeared on many TV shows and movies. He's probably best known prior to Airplane for his role as Jim Phelps in the original Mission Impossible TV series. So Graves really didn't understand initially why they wanted him in the film. He thought the script was funny, but he didn't think it was right for the film because he took his he took serious roles like Stalag 17 and Mission Impossible. And this was exactly the reason that the filmmakers wanted him as the main pilot. He then gets a page from one of the announcers, and part of the reason this film is a comedic masterpiece is because the serious actors from the past were cast in these ridiculous roles because it works so well because everyone plays it straight. That is something that modern comedy has failed at. Peter Graves, Robert Stack, Leslie Nielsen, Lloyd Bridges were all famous serious actors that younger viewers today may not realize. And Peter Graves' phone call is a perfect example of delivering great jokes with a serious tone. Captain Over, white courtesy phone. Captain Clarence Over, white courtesy phone. No, the white phone. Oh. This is Captain Over. One moment for your call from the Mayo Clinic. Uh. Captain Over, white courtesy phone. Captain Clarence Over. I've got it. Thank you. Go ahead with your call. Uh, this is Dr. Brody at the Mayo Clinic. There's a passenger on your Chicago flight 209er, a little girl named Lisa Davis, en route to Minneapolis. She's scheduled for a heart transplant. We'd like you to tell her mother that we found a donor an hour ago. We have the heart here, ready for surgery. We must have the recipient on the operating table within six hours. I want you to make sure that she's kept in a reclined position and that a continuous watch is kept on her IV. Also, it's very important that she remain calm. Excuse me, this is the operator, Captain Over. I have an emergency call for you on line five from a Mr. Ham. All right, give me Ham on five. Hold the mail. The plane to Chicago is being flown by Captain Over, and Elaine is one of the stewardesses. One of the hilarious cameos you might miss is definitely of the time, and that is Jimmy J.J. Walker. Remember Dynamite from uh, Good Times? He's the windshield wiper guy before the plane takes off. It's a great sight gag because he's wiping the plane's windshield and checking the oil under the hood like he would with a regular automobile and then falls off his ladder. (laughs) Now, the studios wanted tons of cameos, which Abrams and the Zuckers did not want, but that's why Jimmy J.J. Walker is actually in this film. Paramount also wanted Barry Manilow to fly the plane, along with Bruce Jenner and David Letterman. But then the cameo that everyone remembers, and they should, is the legendary basketball player Kareem Abdul-Jabbar who plays Roger Murdoch. He'll have one of the most memorable scenes of the film a bit later. So Kareem wanted $35,000 to be in the film in order to buy an oriental rug. The Kareem part originally was written for Pete Rose, who was one of the most famous baseball players at the time. But unfortunately, they were filming during the summer. Of course, baseball is playing during the summer, and Pete was playing ball during that time. Kareem, on the other hand, was in the offseason, and it fit his schedule. Now, the athlete part was a direct tie-in to Zero Hour, which had, at the time, famous Los Angeles Rams running back Elroy Crazy Legs Hirsch in the role, who was absolutely awful acting-wise in his role, but he had a great nickname notwithstanding. 
Ted decides he can't let Elaine leave without getting her back, so he quickly books a ticket for the flight. This leads to another great sight gag, as it was the era where you could actually smoke cigarettes on the plane. So he accepts the smoking section of the plane, which leads him receiving a physical ticket that is literally smoking from the customer service agent. It's also funny to see older films involving air travel, as it was custom to walk onto the terminal to get on your plane, instead of now where you have the tunnel that takes you directly into the plane. Ted now has the first of many of his war flashbacks before getting on the plane. The flashbacks are always the same as he recounts when his plane crashed during the war. Next, we are introduced to two black guys traveling together who speak jive. I seriously doubt in today's kind of overly sensitive environment that this joke would even make it into a comedy film. In any case, it's hilarious as we get subtitles for their quick conversation. This will also set up another classic scene for the film. In the meantime, this is their initial dialogue. Shit, man. That hunk came up me messing my old lady. Got to be running cold upside down his head, you know? Hey, hey home, I can dig it. No, he ain't gonna lay no more big rap up on you, man. I say, hey, Sky. Subba say I won't see? Uh-huh. Pray to Jay, I did the same old, same old. Hey, Mac self approach, slick. The gray matter back, lot performers down, not take TCB in, man. Hey, you know what they say? See a broad to get that booty yak <laughs> Lay her down or smack him, yak him. Cold got to be. You know? <laughs> So, for those listening, the subtitles say, Golly, that white fellow should stay away from my wife or I will punch him. Yes, he is wrong for doing that. I knew a man in a similar predicament and he ended up being sorry. Don't be so naive, Arthur. Each of us faces a clear moral choice. You know what they say, early to bed, early to rise makes man healthy, wealthy, and wise. How true. Golly. So during these jive scenes, the actors who played the characters made up all their dialogue on their own. The jive dialogue idea actually came from Abrams and the Zuckers while watching the movie Shaft, and they did not understand the slang from that film. Next, we get another ongoing joke throughout the film. Ted will sit next to the passenger and strike up a conversation with them. He will ramble on and on about his troubles before the other passenger decides to kill himself. So the boring Ted Stryker stories, that plot point was based on a real guy that Abrams and the Zuckers knew from the Kentucky Fried Theater. We are then introduced to Lisa, the little girl having the heart transplant. She is hooked up to an IV. We also get a gag that makes fun of all the past movies where a man and a woman leave each other at a train station before the train takes off. For Airplane, they have a guy acting like a conductor as the woman runs alongside the plane, knocking over the plane guiding towers as she tries to keep up saying goodbye to this guy. This quote-unquote train scene was a satire in the classic film from 1944, Since You Went Away. 209 at a ground control. We're loaded and ready to taxi. Goodbye, Bill. Goodbye, darling. I love you, darling. 209er, taxi to runway 19er. Goodbye, darling. Have your picture taken the minute you get there. Send me one, all right? Okay, here, hurry. Oh! But it's your watch. You shouldn't. You're going to need this. It's all right. It doesn't work. Bill. Goodbye, darling. Bill. Help. Bill. Bill. Help. 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 Flight 209er, clear for vector 324. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now I radio clearance, over. That's Clarence, over. Over. 
Roger. Huh? Roger, over. What? Hey! Who? So the wordplay, which was made famous by Abbott and Costello bits from the 1940s, is, a per- is perfect here. Elaine hands out reading material for the passengers, which is another thing that has been lost of today's air travel. You have a nun on the plane reading Boy's Life, and then a young boy that is reading Nun's Life. The Nun's Life cover is actually Jim Abrams dressed as a nun surfing. This leads to another great line. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Captain Over speaking. We'll be cruising at 36,000 feet this evening. Our arrival time in Chicago will be 10.45 p.m. Central Time. The temperature there is currently 62 degrees with a 20% chance of precipitation. Meanwhile, relax and enjoy your flight. Would you like something to read? Do you have anything light? Oh, how about this leaflet, Famous Jewish Sports Legends? Yes, thank you. We get the first of Ted's long stories, which eventually leads to the demise of the passenger, the old woman with the leaflet about famous Jewish athletes. Her facial expressions about how uncomfortable and bored she is with Ted's stories is terrific. His first story involves meeting Elaine the first time when he was in the Air Force Station in the Barbary Coast, joking that it was a rough place, worse than Detroit. (laughs) This leads to a fun scene involving a brawl between Girl Scouts and a parody of Saturday Night Fever as he dances to Stayin' Alive. I always loved when he throws off his jacket, only to get it thrown back at him. The other scene that made me crack up as a kid was when the old sailor that Elaine is dancing with initially gets stabbed in the back, and then he keeps making these kind of herky-jerky motions to try to tell her that he's got his knife in his back, and she just keeps smiling and dancing, impersonating him, thinking it's a new sort of dance. So Robert Hayes was on wires the whole time during the solo dance scene. He's basically like a marionette. The juggling part was spur of the moment in the middle of the take. So while Robert Hayes was filming Airplane, at the same time, he met John Travolta, who was filming Urban Cowboy. Hayes told Travolta about some of the great scenes in the film, but he didn't tell him he was going to impersonate him doing Saturday Night Fever. We return back to the plane, and we see the old woman's legs dangling as she's just hanged herself after listening to Ted's story. (laughs) There are so many little scenes that are hilarious that are easily forgotten because of all the bigger gags, but that's what really makes Airplane one of the funniest movies ever, like this interaction between a young boy and a girl. The reason are the reaction shots are so good for the kids. Excuse me. I happen to be passing, and I thought you might like some coffee. Oh, that's very nice of you. Thank you. I want you to sit down. Thank you. No, thank you. I take it black. Like my men. So Elaine still has feelings for Ted as she has a flashback of her own. Her flashback is a parody of the famous Burt Lancaster Deborah Carr love scene in From Here to an Eternity on the beach where they kiss and as the waves hit them on the shore. In the airplane version, they get washed over and covered in seaweed and other ocean debris. And the directors, amazingly, had never actually seen this film that it was based on. We then get to enjoy everyone's favorite pedophile, (laughs) Captain Dover, as he shows one of the young passengers, Joey, inside the cockpit. This scene is absolutely priceless, which also coincides with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's brilliant lines trying to claim that he isn't a basketball superstar. Ever been in a cockpit before? No, sir, I've never been up in a plane before. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? Do you want me to check the weather, Clarence? No, why don't you take care of it? Joey... Did you ever hang around the gymnasium? 
We better get back now, Joey. No, Joey can stay here for a while if you'd like. Could I? Okay, if you don't get in the way. Our flight 209er to Denver Radio. Climbing to cruise at 42,000. We'll report again over Lincoln. Over and out. Wait a minute. I know you. You're Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You play basketball for the Los Angeles Lakers. I'm sorry, son, but you must have me confused with someone else. My name is Roger Murdoch. I'm the co-pilot. You are Kareem. I've seen you play. My dad's got season tickets. I think you should go back to your seat now, Joey. Right, Clarence? Oh, he's not bothering anyone. Let him stay here. All right, but just remember, my name is Roger Murdoch. I'm an airline pilot. I think you're the greatest, but my dad says you don't work hard enough on defense. And he says that lots of times you don't even run down court. And that you don't really try, except during the playoffs. The hell I don't. Listen, kid. I've been hearing that crap ever since I was at UCLA. I'm out there busting my buns every night. Tell your old man to drag Walton in the near up and down the court for 48 minutes. Joey, do you like movies about gladiators? <laughs> so many things are hilarious about that last scene. It's truly brilliant. My friends and I, back in the day, would say random things in class just from that scene. Like, the hell I don't! <laughs> when meeting with someone for the first time, do you like movies about gladiators? And if they don't get it, they're just not cool enough. Also, Cream is talking about Bill Walton and Bob Lanier, who were the top centers in basketball back in the day. Peter Graves was absolutely horrified with the lines he had to deliver and was worried that his career might be over after the movie, but it's lived in infamy and some of the most famous dialogue in the film comes from Peter Graves. Graves and the other actors didn't necessarily think that the dialogue would work, but Abrams and Zucker knew it would. Graves didn't even want to go to the director's guild screening worried that it would be horrible, but it went over brilliantly and Graves couldn't believe it. So when Jim Abrams was transcribing the Zero Hour script, there was an exact scene in the film where a young boy goes into the cockpit to talk to the pilots. And there's a line where the pilot asks if the boy has ever been in a cockpit before. Abrams wrote the line as, Have you ever sucked a grown man's cock before? <laughs> so everyone cracked up, but they knew that would never make it into the actual script. Eventually, this one line evolved into the jokes that Captain Over would be best known for. We get another flashback scene from Ted as after he continues to attempt to reconnect with Elaine on the plane. This time, it's when Ted's bedtime in the mental hospital after his crash. You get another blast from the past that I guarantee nobody will get if they're under 80 years old, and that's Ethel Merman who makes a cameo after Ted jokes that one of the patients thinks they are Ethel Merman. For those that don't know, she was a famous singing actress who made her name on Broadway musicals from the 1930s through the 60s. So, Ethel Merman had one request to appear in this film, and she just wanted to bring her own hairdresser. The directors absolutely loved her on set, and she was a delight to be around, according to them. Speaking of singing, next we get a great scene with Randy the Stewardess, played by Lorna Patterson, who borrows an acoustic guitar from the nun on the plane and decides to sing for Lisa the Heart Transplant Girl. Here's another scene that I absolutely loved as a kid because Randy accidentally knocks out the IV from Lisa's arm while getting into the song, which leads Lisa to go into shock. <laughs> so if you didn't know, Lorna Patterson's other memorable role was as Private Benjamin in the TV show adaptation. 
So the directors couldn't have the nun sing the song to the heart transplant girl because it would have conflicted with the actual airport movie, which was owned by Universal. And that's why Lorna Patterson, who played Randy, had to do this song instead of the nun. Now, the writer of that particular song that Randy sings was horrified that his beautiful love song dedicated to two people getting married was used in a farce like Airplane. (laughs) So next, Ted decides to bore yet another passenger to death as he reminisces about his time in the Peace Corps with Elaine after the war where they were stationed at a small tribe in Africa. Ted teaches them basketball and they end up shooting and dunking like pros while Elaine shows the women Tupperware usages. (laughs) The flashback leads to another hilarious ongoing gag of the beginning of Ted's drinking problem. This involves him attempting to drink a glass of something and then missing his mouth completely. We return to the plane, and the man Ted's talking to, James Hong, decides to stab himself with a knife while Ted keeps telling his story. You might remember James Hong from the Kurt Russell movie, Big Trouble in Little China, as he played David Lopan. This is also the beginning where the passengers are starting to get sick from the dinner they were served. We find out later it was from the fish. This is a great throwaway line from a woman describing how she feels. (laughs) Oh, Stand it. What is it? Oh. Yes? Oh, it's my stomach. I haven't felt this awful since we saw that Ronald Reagan film. I'll see if I can find some Dramamine. So you have to keep in mind, when this came out, it was during the 1980 election where Ronald Reagan was running against Jimmy Carter. In any case, Joey returns to the cockpit and we get another gem from Captain Over. Joey, have you ever been in a in a Turkish prison? <laughs> like the abortion line earlier in the film, this led me to find out about Turkish prisons. Good times. Also, one of my favorite things as a kid was to hear people throw up in a comedic way. <laughs> Would either of you like another cup of coffee? I will, but Jim won't. I think I will have another cup of coffee. Jim never has a second cup of coffee at home. I should have had that second cup of coffee. Jim never vomits at home. So all those great vomit noises were done by Jim Abrams. The Jim Never lady will soon have her own infamous scene coming up. Next, we are introduced to Dr. Rumack, played by Leslie Nielsen, who is sleeping in his seat with his stethoscope in his ears like headphones. He checks on the woman who didn't like the Ronald Reagan films, and she now has eggs coming out of her mouth. Dr. Rumack hatches one, and a little bird flies out. <laughs> You'd better tell the captain we've got to land as soon as we can. This woman has to be gotten to a hospital. A hospital? What is it? It's a big building with patients, but that's not important right now. Tell the captain I must speak to him. Certainly. Captain, how soon can you land? I can't tell. You can tell me I'm a doctor. No, I mean I'm just not sure. Or can't you take a guess? Well, not for another two hours. You can't take a guess for another two hours? No, 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 I mean we can't land for another two hours. Fog has closed down everything this side of the mountains. We've got to get through to Chicago.
is it, Doctor? What's going on? I'm not sure. I haven't seen anything like this since the Anita Bryant concert. What was it we had for dinner tonight? Well, we had a choice, steak, fish. Yes, yes, I remember I had lasagna. What did he have? He had fish. Doctor, there are two more sick people and the rest of the passengers are worried. I'll take care of the passengers. Find out what the two sick people had for dinner. This is Captain Over speaking. Been a little bumpy up here, but we'll be past it in a few minutes. Uh, a couple points of interest. We're now flying over Hoover Dam. And a little later on, we'll pass to the south of the Grand Canyon. Meanwhile, relax and enjoy your flight, okay? Chicago, this is flight 209er. We're in trouble. This is the amazing back and forth between the two terrific actors, totally playing it straight, which really what makes the scene work. Two of the pilots passed out from the food poisoning. Cream ends up being dragged out down the aisle in full view of the passengers in his Lakers uniform, which is hilarious. So they actually had to build a platform with wheels to have Lorna Patterson drag Cream down the aisle when he's passed out after eating the fish because he was too huge to drag down the aisle without assistance. So in reality, pilots can't eat the same meal for the exact reason to prevent them from potentially getting food poisoning. Leslie Nielsen, during the first read of the script, didn't have the right tone in his lines that the movie called for. The guys gave him a tape of Zero Hour and told him to study the doctor in the film. The next day, he totally understood what they were going for and nailed the part. Nielsen, like Peter Graves, was a serious actor for his entire career prior to Airplane. And then from this film, his whole film career pivoted and he became a go-to actor for parody films like Naked Gun. Dr. Rumack tells us the symptoms and outcome of what's happening to the passengers who ate the fish. The best part is seeing Captain Over go through the symptoms process in real time, as Rumack tells us. Dr. Rumack, Mr. Hammond ate fish, and Randy said there are five more cases, and they all had fish, too. And the co-pilot had fish. What did the navigator have? He had fish. All right. Now we know what we're up against. Every passenger on this plane who had fish for dinner will become violently ill in the next half hour. Just how serious is it, Doctor? Extremely serious. Starts with a slight fever, dryness of the throat. As the virus penetrates the red blood cells, the victim becomes dizzy because we experience an itching, a rash. From there, the poison goes to work on the central nervous system, causing severe muscle spasms, followed by the inevitable grueling. At this point, the entire digestive system collapses, accompanied by uncontrollable flatulence, until finally the poor bastard is reduced to a quivering, wasted piece of jelly. Captain Over is the next person to be taken out by the fish, and now we are introduced to Otto, the automatic pilot, which is a blow-up doll. More on him later. By now, it's time to be introduced to the air traffic controller, Steve McCroskey, played by Lloyd Bridges. Bridges was always one of my favorite characters, along with his co-worker, Johnny Steven Stucker. The back and forth between the two is amazing, and they both easily have the most memorable lines in the film. Back to you in a minute. Hold all takeoffs. I don't want another plane in the air. And a 508 reports, bring it straight in. Yes, sir. Put out a general bulletin to suspend all meal service on flights out of Los Angeles. Tell all dispatchers to remain at the post. It's going to be a long night. How about some coffee, Johnny? No, thanks. I want the weather on every landing field this side of the line, no matter what the size. You understand? Any place, any place where there's a chance to land that plane. Stan, go upstairs to the tower and get a runway diagram. 
Terry, check down the field for emergency equipment. Chief, we got fog right down to the deck, every place east of the Rockies. No possible place they can land. They'll have to come through to Chicago. Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit smoking. I want the best available man on this. A man who knows that plane inside and out and won't crack under pressure. How about Mr. Rogers? Get me Rex Kramer. So Bridges, if you weren't aware, is the father of Jeff Bridges and Bo Bridges. Nice acting lineage there. So Steven Stucker essentially wrote all of his own dialogue for Johnny. The directors would provide him with the setups and he'd provide the punchlines. He worked together with the guys at their theater group. At this point, the writers are just wetting our appetite from the dialogue between Bridges and Stucker. They set up the I quit the wrong week joke with a simple cigarette line and Johnny chiming with, how about Mr. Rogers? (laughs) It only gets better from there. Rex Kramer is played by Robert Stack, who needs to be brought in to help guide the plane to a landing. Robert Stack totally understood what the guys were trying to do in the film. He even had to tell Lloyd Bridges that they were the joke because Bridges kept asking a lot of questions about their characters. The guy said that Stack was fabulous on set with a terrific sense of humor. Stack was actually offered points on the film, but instead took $20,000 extra since he didn't think the movie would become as popular as it did. In the meantime, McCroskey needs to help Elaine get the automatic pilot up and running after he starts to deflate. Here's a gag that I totally didn't understand as a kid, (laughs) as the tube to reinflate auto just happens to be near his belt buckle. So Dr. Ruback walks into the cockpit and sees Elaine's head in Otto's lap and gives kind of an oh boy look. (laughs) They then have Otto smiling during the reinflation, and then afterwards they both smoke cigarettes. (laughs) Completely ridiculous, but it's great. So Leslie Nielsen's reaction of kind of the oh boy (laughs) during the auto scene where Elaine needs to reinflate him was all improv. So Dr. Rumack informs Elaine that the passenger's going to die unless they get to a hospital ASAP. They need someone who can fly the plane, but also did not eat fish for dinner, which leads to this great announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your stewardess speaking. We regret any inconvenience the sudden cabin movement might have caused. This is due to periodic air pockets we encountered. There's no reason to become alarmed, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your flight. By the way, is there anyone on board who knows how to fly a plane? There are so many crazy things about this last scene. One, while Elaine is making her announcement, Captain Over is being dragged down the aisle, passed out. Then, when everyone goes berserk, we get the most random case of gratuitous nudity ever as a woman simply jumps in front of the camera topless and jumps up and down for a bit for a few seconds and then goes away. Pretty sure this was the first nude scene I ever saw (laughs) in film. In addition, you have two guys dueling with swords and the nun is choking the Hare Krishna. Next, we officially meet Rex Kramer, who is picked up at his house by an airport associate who is manhandled by Kramer's dog. It's so random, and it's hilarious. Hello, I'm Paul Carey from the airline. I'm here to pick up Captain Kramer. Oh, yes. Come in, Paul. Uh, Rex will be right out. 
So nobody notices the mirror shot when Robert Stack actually walks through it. It's sort of an optical illusion, so check it out next time you watch the film. Randy discovers that Ted can fly and asks if he can take over the flight duties. During this exchange, the guy next to Ted was just pouring gasoline all over himself because he was going to light himself on fire because he had to listen to one of Ted's stories. When they built those roads, they had no thought of drainage in mind. So we had to take a special Jeep up to the main road. In fact, we were lucky to even get a Jeep since just the day before. Only one that we had broke down and had a bad accident. Excuse me, sir. There's been a little problem in the cockpit. The cockpit? What is it? It's the little room in the front of the plane where the pilots sit. That's not important right now. You see, the first officer is ill, and the captain needs someone to help him with the radio. Do you know anything about planes? Well, I flew in the war, but that was years ago. I wouldn't know anything about it. Would you go up, please? Both pilots. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Doctor, I've checked everyone. Mr. Stryker's the only one. What flying experience have you had? Oh, I flew single-engine fighters in the Air Force, but this plane has four engines. It's an entirely different kind of flying, altogether. It's, it's an, an entirely, entirely different, different kind of flying. flying. Besides, I haven't touched any kind of plane in six years. Mr. Stryker, I know nothing about flying. But there's one thing I do know. You're the only one on this plane who can possibly fly it. You're the only chance we've got. Don't Call Me Shirley is one of the most famous lines in film history, and I must say the score from Elmer Bernstein is also what makes this film great. 
the serious tone of a thriller type of score is just perfect. And oh, by the way, we are brought back to the original airport as Ted's taxi cab is still waiting with the passenger and as the fare is now $113. So the guy sitting in the taxi was Howard Jarvis, who wrote a property tax law in California called Prop 13, which was a money-saving and tax-cutting initiative that led to major cuts in public services, especially in schools and libraries in California. Another sight gag is Kramer driving to the airport while he drives like just like a maniac. <laughs> he runs over a bicyclist. It's great, as you can clearly see it's a green screen, as so often was the case during driving scenes in much older films. And what the guys did was they added men on horses in the background and whatnot, and the car that Robert Stack was driving to the airport was actually Robert Hayes' Mustang. So the Jim Never lady <laughs> is now starting to lose her mind as a group of passengers wait in line to beat the crap out of her. I love that the nun slaps her while another passenger has a baseball bat, another one has a gun, <laughs> they're all waiting in line to get their licks in. In the meantime, Rex Kramer beats the shit out of all the religious nuts at the airport. Robert Stack did all of his own stunts for this fight scene and he was 61 years old at the time. Mayday! 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 Mayday? What the hell is that for? Mayday? Why, that's the Russian New Year. You know we'll have a big parade and we'll serve hot or dirt. <laughs> anymore. I've got to get out of here. I've got to get out of here. Calm down. Get a hold of yourself. Calm down. Now get back to your seat. I'll take care of this. Calm down. Calm down. Get a hold of yourself. Don't do your one another phone. Everything's going to be all right. Please. Sister, please. I've got to get out of here. We'd like you to have this flower. Excuse me, sir, would you? Donation to the Reverend Moon. Juice for Jesus. Read about Jehovah's Witness. How about Buddhism? How about Jerry's kids? Oh, yeah. Scientology. Or nuclear power. So the actress, Lee Bryant, who gets slapped by the passengers, actually made this suggestion for the beatings in the scene because the original script didn't have that included. So kudos to her. As it turns out, Kramer flew with Ted during the war and does not think highly of him. It's like I took the wrong week to quit drinking. Stryker? Stryker, this is Captain Rex Kramer speaking. Yes, Captain Kramer. Read you loud and clear. Right, it's obvious you remember me. So what do you say you and I just forget about everything except what we have to do now? Let's not kid each other, Kramer. You know I've never flown a bucket like this. I'm gonna need all the luck there is. Stand by, Stryker. My one hope is to build this man up. I'm gonna give him all the confidence I can. Stryker? You ever flown a motor engine plane before? No, never. Shit. This is a goddamn waste of time. There's no way you can land this plane. Have all yourself. You gotta talk him down. You gotta. Route him into Lake Michigan. At least he'll avoid killing innocent people. You're the only chance they've got. All right. So begrudgingly, Kramer attempts to help Ted land the plane. 
First, they have to turn off the autopilot, which they do, and Otto goes flying around the cockpit and then reappears standing behind Elaine with his hands on Elaine's boobs. <laughs> anyway, Elaine is now Ted's co-pilot. Next, we get another classic scene. You know what you love it. Enjoy. Can I get you something? Some more folk butter into the bone, jacking me up. Tighten me. I'm sorry, I don't understand. Cuddy say can't hang. Oh, stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right, would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine. Just hang loose, blood. She's gonna catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama didn't raise no dummies. I duck her rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. Chomp the one to help, chomp don't get the help. Say can't hang, say seven up. Jive ass dude don't got no brains in here. Chief, give me Captain Over's live in the phone. We better let him know what's going on. Chief, this weather bulletin just came off the wire. Johnny, what can you make out of this? This? So I kept the quip running because I love Johnny and I can make a hap, I can make a brooch, a pterodactyl. <laughs> and the brilliance of the jive scene is often now lost on younger viewers. When the movie was first released, people laughed at it because it was Barbara Billingsley who played June Cleaver on the popular TV show Leave it to Beaver in the 1950s. June Cleaver was the epitome of the suburban life in the 1950s. And to have her knowing how to speak, you know, like a black soul type of way was ridiculously funny. And today the scene is still hilarious, even if you don't know about Leave it to Beaver, because it's just an older white lady speaking in black slang. So the actors who played the Jive guys actually taught Barbara Billingsley how to say the lines, and she picked it up really quickly, and they absolutely loved her. They also wrote the lines, she said, as well. One of the most random scenes was with Captain Over's wife, who was notified about her husband's health status. She is woken up by a call, and she's in bed with a horse. <laughs> so, Captain Over likes little boys, and she's into bestiality. Fun for everyone. Back to the airport, McCroskey, Kramer, and Johnny have their own problems. Gunderson, let me know when you get anything. Got a cigarette, Nelson? I can't take much more of this. Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit amphetamines. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. Chief, these reporters won't leave without a statement. How much longer can those passengers hold out? Uh, half an hour and 45 minutes. Who's flying the plane? One of the passengers. But he's an experienced Air Force pilot who flew during the war, so there's no cause for alarm. Henshaw, take over. What kind of plane is it? Oh, it's a big, pretty white plane with red stripes and curtains in the window and wheels, and it looks like a big tile and all. Okay, boys, let's get some pictures. By getting some pictures, they actually grab photos off the wall of the office. <laughs> Another forgotten gem is when a passenger on the plane decides to take a sip of whiskey from the flask he suck in. He offers a drink to the woman across from him, who indignantly <laughs> rejects his offer, and then she proceeds to do a few lines of cocaine. <laughs> And then, of course, more vomit noises is always a winner, especially when a nun is singing her rendition of Respect. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what it means to me. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, take out T-C-P. Suck to me, 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 suck to me. A little bit. 
Meanwhile, Randy and Ted go through their own crises. Besides, I'm 26 and I'm not married. We're going to make it. You've got to believe that. Dr. Rumack, do you have any idea when we'll be landing? Pretty soon. How are you bearing up? Well, to be honest, I've never been so scared. But at least I have a husband. number four. What happened, Ted? What went wrong? The oil pressure. I forgot to check the oil pressure. When Kramer hears about this, the ship's gonna hit the fan. Watch that oil temperature. What the hell's he doing up there? Stryker, that plane can't land itself. It takes a pilot who can handle pressure. Ease off, Rex. He hasn't flown for years. It's not his fault. It could happen to any pilot. It happened to Barbara Stanwyck. You can't push him too hard. He might break. Gotta remember who you're dealing with. Nick, he... Jared, there's a fire in the barn. He's right. I can't take the pressure. I was crazy to think I could land this plane. I don't care. I don't have what it takes. I'd be better off with someone who'd never flown before. Bad news. The fog is getting thicker. And Leon's getting larger. Thankfully, Dr. Rumack saves the day with an inspirational speech for Ted. What you're gonna say, so save your breath. No, I don't have a thing to say. You've done the best you could. You really have the best you could. You can't expect to win them all. But I want to tell you something I kept to myself through these years. I was in the war myself, medical corps on late duty one night when they brought in a badly wounded pilot from one of the raids. Could barely talk. He looked up at me and Doc, he said, the odds were against us up there, but we went in anyway. I'm glad. Captain made the right decision. The pilot's name was George Zip. George Zip said that? Last thing he said to me, Doc, he said, sometime the crew is up against it. The brakes are beating the boys. Tell them to get out there and give it all they've got. And win just one for the zipper. I don't know where I'll be then, Doc, he said. 
That won't smell too good, that's for sure. Excuse me, Doc. I've got a plane to land. So this is a parody, and Eber kind of referenced it, of the famous scene also with Ronald Reagan from the film Newt Rockney, All-American. So the whole win one for the Gipper, Reagan played George Gipp. Also inspiring is the random dialogue from our favorite guy, Johnny. <laughs> Passengers certain to die. Airline negligent. There's a sale at Penny's. All right, I'll need three men up in the tower. You, Nubar, you must see us. Me, John, big tree. Stand by, Striker. We're going to the tower. Good luck. We're going to the tower. The tower? The tower? Rapunzel! Rapunzel! Nelson, Linda. Your husband and the others are alive, but unconscious. Just like Gerald Ford. Now, there's a chance that we can save him if Stryker can get that plane down on time. That isn't much of a chance, is it? I don't know, Linda. I don't know. But we're doing everything we can. Now, excuse me, huh? Where did you get that dress? It's awful on those shoes and that coat. So it's time for Ted to attempt to land the plane, and everyone is on edge. And also, you gotta keep away from the glue. Sure is quiet out there. Yeah, too quiet. Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing glue. You're coming in too fast. I know, I know. He knows, he knows. Ah. Below 700 now, still going down. 675, 650, 625. He's holding, he's holding. He said, no, no, he's down, he's down. Sound your alarm bell, now. All right, now, everybody, get in crash position. Flat. All right, you now listen to me. Remember your brakes and switches. Get ready to flat out. He's all over the place. 900 feet up to 1,300 feet. What an asshole. More left foot. Put down more flat. Just kidding. <laughs> Striker, lift your nose. Straighten your wings. Coming in too fast, watch your speed. He's coming right at us! <laughs> coming in too hot. He's up on the front. Watch for that crosswind. Level it out. Aim for the numbers. Let the dip your left wing. They're drifting. Keep your eyes on the far end of the runway. Gate 13, gate 14, gate 15. Out of here, 
Through all the mayhem, Dr. Rumek calmly shows up into the cockpit to continually tell them, good luck, we're all counting on you. <laughs> so Ted lands the plane miraculously and everyone lives happily ever after. Except for Steve McCroskey, who jumped out the window after feeling the effects of excess glue sniffing. <laughs> That's some good shit! Also, you may miss the ambulance crashing after taking some passengers from the plane. <laughs> of course, the ending is perfect with Ted and Elaine together, and then we see Otto and his female Otto co-pilot restart the plane and depart. The end. Actually, not so fast. For years, I thought that Ferris Bueller was the king of the after credits last scene. But actually, Airplane does the same thing as we see the passenger still sitting in Ted's cab after hours of waiting, and he says, Well, I'll give him another 20 minutes. But that's it. So this was supposed to be funny at the time because Howard Jarvis saved the taxpayers' money with Prop 13 while he's gladly wasting money by waiting in his cab. So in the credits, you might notice there's a joke uh, that they give credit to author of uh, Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens. <laughs> All right, there were a couple deleted scenes. Uh, there was the kids drinking coffee together that was a bit longer. And then the other one is uh, Robert Stack and Lloyd Bridges. They're standing by a water cooler, and they continue to take little, the little cups from the cooler one after another and throw them down on the ground while having a conversation. It's actually really funny, but it didn't do well in the test screenings. All right, there are a ton of fun facts. Let's go through them. There was going to be an Air Poland joke where Jose Feliciano was the pilot. And if you didn't know, Jose Feliciano was a blind musician. The joke was cut out since the anti-defamation group complained. So there was a sequel, Airplane 2, but the directors had nothing to do with the sequel. The studio was relentless about having a sequel since the first film was so successful. But to their credit, the guys just felt that they did everything possible joke-wise in the original film, which is why the second film just rehashed a lot of the same jokes. Abrams and the Zuckers have never, ever seen the sequel. So the airline, Transamerican, is a real airline, but it was a cargo airline. (laughs) Leslie Nielsen used to always carry a manual fart machine device. He would walk up to random people he'd never met and just make fart noises from the palm of his hand. (laughs) He loved to keep people off guard. Robert Hayes said the toughest part about being in the film for him were the scenes with Leslie Nielsen because he kept setting off his fart machine in every take. (laughs) Peter Graves said that pilots adored the movie and often was invited into the cockpits during his flights after the film. The woman who gets makeup all over her face during the turbulence was the Zucker's mother. Leslie Nielsen's nose growing when he's lying to the passengers was just a broom handle where you don't see his face. The first take when the shit really hits the fan actually hit Stephen Stucker in the face. (laughs) So Aero Mexico was the only airline at the time to buy the film for their in-flight entertainment. The part of the Jive Lady was originally intended for Harriet Nelson, who had played the mother in the 1950s sitcom The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. She turned it down because she was concerned about the film's adult language. She later admitted to Robert Hayes that she regretted not taking the part. But look, nobody could have done it better than Barbara Billingsley. So Stayin' Alive, the song, was sped up for the dancing in the film. Permission from the Bee Gees had to be obtained to to speed it up. To get the film green-lighted by Paramount, Jim Abrams, David Zucker, and Jerry Zucker pitched it as National Lampoon's Animal House on a plane, which of course was far from the truth, but the only way they could get the studio execs to understand it was a zany comedy. According to his autobiography, Christopher Lee actually turned down the role of Dr. Rumack, and he described it as a big mistake. That would completely change the life of Leslie Nielsen. Sigourney Weaver auditioned for the role of Elaine. 
Bill Murray and Chevy Chase were considered for the role of Ted. In an interview shortly after the death of Peter Graves in 2010, Ross Harris, who played Joey, said that Graves was extremely uncomfortable when the two were on set together. Graves avoided any contact with him when they were not filming. Harris also commented that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was not acting when he erupted and grabbed Joey following his relentless criticisms about Kareem's basketball performance. Harris said that Kareem grabbed him very hard and Joey's fearful expression was quite real. There was a scene in the original script that was not shot because there was a nod to Lloyd Bridges' role on the TV show Sea Hunt, where after he jumps out the window from hallucinating after sniffing glue, he is in his full Sea Hunt scuba garb on the airport runway. Now, the Australian title of this movie is called Flying High. Peter Graves once told a story where mothers who had seen the film and Peter Graves would, you know, nonchalantly like, hey, how you doing there, little guy? They would <laughs> pull their kids away because they thought he was the character in the film. Oh, it's too good. All right. Look, I've said it many times before. This is my, the, my all-time favorite movie. My second all-time favorite movie is The Blues Brothers. They're both filmed in 1980. Uh, they are completely different movies, but they're both very funny. But Airplane, my God, it, like it, it bears repeat viewing. Even after all these years, there's still stuff I catch. And even if I know it's coming, I still love it. it. It's just a terrific comedy. It never gets old. And I hope today's generation will appreciate it. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. I'm glad it still lives. It's been 40 years since it first came out as I'm recording this. So go back, enjoy. If you want to watch the sequel, go ahead. I do own the sequel, so eventually we will cover it. But nowhere near as good as the original classic. I will be back next week for yet another random movie from my DVD collection. Hey, this is Brian Davis, and you might know me from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. And now, get ready for the Bad Beat Show on ThatMetalStation.com from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday night. I'm going to play some kick-ass hard rock inspired by the blues, because after all, the foundation of all things rock and metal is, of course, the blues. So join me every Wednesday night for the bad beat, because even when you lose, you still win. We are officially on Spotify now, so if you don't use iTunes, if you don't use the Podbean app, you can go to Spotify and get all of our past episodes. You can stream it on there, so if you're a Spotify user, you can go find Damn Good Movie Memories. <laughs> I can't even say my own podcast. Damn Good Movie Memories. Yes, I know what I'm talking about. I'm the host, right? Okay, so go to Spotify, look for Damn Good Movie Memories. You can stream all of that stuff. And yeah, so if you don't want to use iTunes, you don't want to use Podbean, you can use Spotify as well. All right, before we sign off, we do have t-shirts are available for sale. All you have to do is go to tpublic, that's T-E-E-P-U-B-L-I-C.com, and you can get your very own Damn Good Movie Memories t-shirt. You can get all sizes, any gender, you can get whatever you want just at the tip of your fingers. So just go to tpublic.com, look up Damn Good Movie Memories, and you can get your very own t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast and are an iTunes user, please do the show a favor and head on over to the official iTunes page for Damn Good Movie Memories. Be sure to leave a rating and a review. This will allow the show to appear higher in the algorithm and spread the joy of this podcast to the masses. If you are not an iTunes user, you can still listen and subscribe on Podbean at damngoodmoviememories.podbean.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook under our Damn Good Movie Memories page. You can also listen to a limited number of episodes on YouTube. 
I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and be sure to tune in next week for an all new episode of Damn Good Movie Memories. I am Dr. Fuck. And I'm the actual alcoholic. And we are part of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. We are the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. That's right. The way you can check us out is we are on iTunes and also Podbean. And we forgot a review recently. I got this review right here. It says right here, it says, Rock and Metal Combat Podcast is the greatest podcast in the world. And it's my number one podcast signed by Science. Now, and then Science also says... Science! Science also said... My second favorite podcast is It Doesn't Matter, The Rest Suck. Rock and Metal Combat Podcast on iTunes and Poppy. Check it out. Science! Are you ready for the hottest new podcast out there? Check out the Vieira Vault featuring none other than Dr. Fuck Ralph Vieira. You will hear personal stories and personal songs from the vault. There ain't nothing else like it. The one, the only, the original, Vieira Vault. On Podbean, Stitcher.com, and iTunes. Spreaker. God damn it. This is Stephen Michael from the Growing Up Rock Podcast. If you're like me and my co-host, Sonny Hollywood Pooney, you grew up loving hard rock and metal music. Check out our podcast where we talk to bands and artists that help create the soundtrack to our lives, along with playing some killer new and old deep tracks of kick-ass, guitar-driven rock and roll. Find us wherever you find your podcast to listen to, That's the Growing Up Rock Podcast, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K. And feel free to hit us up at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Growing Up Rock. So sit back and crank it up.